everybody. Good evening. Five o'clock's hard to get to, isn't it? I mean, here by five, I think that's kind of difficult, don't you? Um, I was trying to get here by five and only ended up being here like uh, 13 minutes ahead of time. I wanted to get here like a full 45 minutes. You know what it's like. You want to be in the bookstore for a while and, uh, and peruse, and I didn't get a chance to do that. I'll have to do that after we're done. So uh, five, five o'clock's hard to get hereby, but uh, I'm glad you're here. We need to get started because I've only got an hour and there's a lot to discuss. So let me um, start with a word of prayer and then we'll jump into our content. Bow with me, please. Gracious Father, you are kind. And Father, the fact that we are here tonight is evidence of that. We are breathing. Um, Father God, we are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are yours. And Father, we live in Christ. So, Lord, we live in grace that you've lavished upon us in him. Father, help us to then show our gratitude to you and how much worthy you are, how worthy you are by helping other people to walk worthy of you. May that be the reflection of our gratitude that we help other people repent and believe and walk by faith and, Lord, um, to uproot idols and walk by the Spirit. Only you can help us do this. Help us to pay attention. Guard us from distractions, both inside our hearts and, and also outward distractions as well, so that we can focus on your word tonight and helping other people and bearing, um, helping pe- people to bear their burdens with the word of God. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters, uh, if, if you don't already know, I'm Brent Osterberg. I'm one of the pastors at Living Hope Bible Church in Mansfield, Texas. We're about an hour east of here. And so if you were to go over to 1187 and just take a right, you'd hit Mansfield eventually. Um, we, uh, we just had about, we just finished our seventh month as a merged church. Uh, Calvary Bible Church, uh, Dan Kirk is the pastor of Calvary Bible Church in Fort Worth, sent me to plant a church in Mansfield in 2015, and we had the, pl- uh, the pleasure of merging with another church this last January, and so it's been going wonderfully, and so uh, if you ever want to know what a church merge is like, you can call me, we had no playbook for it, and so it's been an adventure along the way, and God has been gracious to show himself and his, uh, his resources that we find in Christ so apt during this time, so... We're grateful for that. Well, um, I want to talk to you tonight about scrupulosity. And in particular, one aspect of scrupulosity, and that, if that word is new to you, I'll explain it here in just a moment. But uh, Keith Palmer and I um, are going to be teaching four different messages on scrupul- scrupulosity. So I'm going to do one this weekend, and then I believe we're going to get the rest of them in the third weekend on this subject of scrupulosity. And... Um, in particular, if you're asking that question, what is scrupulosity? Uh, I think that first part of the word is going to give you um, an indication. Scruples, right? Conscience. You think of scruples, you think of conscience, you think of morality. Now, let's answer this a little bit more precisely. What is scrupulosity? It is a subset of obsessive-compulsive disorder, OCD. And so, if we're going to understand what scrupulosity is, we have to then uh, describe what obsessive-compulsive disorder is. Now, um, there are caricatures of this in society. If you've uh, watched TV or you, you've been on social media at all, there are caricatures of OCD. If you ever watched the TV show Monk, it's, uh, the obsessive-compulsive detective, um, he's got he's to wipe his hands constantly, and he's got to touch things repeatedly. And it's, uh, you know, straightened pictures on the wall, and that's part of his uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and we, we kind of laugh at it, but for many people, this is not a funny matter at all. In fact, it, it feels like torment to people who struggle with this. And so let's, let's go through each of these words in OCD. What does it stand for? First of all, O is for obsessions or obsessive, right? Obsessions, this is from Michael Emlett, who has uh, done a lot of study on scrupulosity from a biblical counseling perspective. He says this, an obsession is a persistent thought, impulse, or image that you find intrusive, inappropriate, and anxiety-inducing. And so the person with a struggle in this way 
will have these obsessions that feel like an assault on them. Now, we know the heart is involved in this. You're in track three. You understand what the heart is about, biblically speaking. But it feels like an assault. It feels like these thoughts are coming from out of nowhere. It's just like uh, it's it's a, a bombardment, an onslaught, if you will. Like they're almost like they're an attack on you. And there's a way that the scrupulous person, I'll call him, would respond to these obsessions with compulsions. Now, compulsions are um, ritualistic behaviors or mental processes that are used to temporarily neutralize or reduce the anxiety associated with your obsession. The obsession is anxiety-inducing, remember? And it's very fearful for the person experiencing it. And so in order to temporarily, that's an important word there, neutralize the obsession, this, this feeling of an intrusive thought. And that's really what we mean by obsessions, intrusive thoughts. Then that person will do something like, like you would see uh, Adrian Monk do on the episodes of Monk. He would have to count or touch things repeatedly. That would be his compulsion, if you will. Or somebody may feel the need to um, continue to check to make sure something is done. Checking is a big compulsion. And I'll actually be teaching a lecture on compulsions. Um, Probably, I think it's the third weekend in November. And so I won't dip into it too much here. But uh, it's, it's something that a person can do. It could be related to the obsession or unrelated to the obsession. But it temporarily neutralizes that obsession. But here's the thing. Spiritually speaking, the obsession just comes back stronger later. You handle it, if you handle that obsession in a, in a way that is unbiblical, then it's just going to be that much stronger later on. Some people, um, they have to, for instance, if, uh, if somebody has a fear, an obsession that when they are driving their car, and this, this may sound strange, but this is people suffer from this. A person driving his car hits a bump in the road. And he's got an intrusive thought that says, I hit somebody. That, that wasn't a pothole. I, I hit a person. What, what if that person's injured? What, what if that person's dead? What, what, if that person, what if that person needs help and I just drive off and, and no one's there to help them? What, what could happen to me? Could I, could I get arrested for that? And then they can't let it go. It's, it's, it's intrusive. It's unwanted. They can't let it. It feels like they can't let it go. And so a compulsion might be, uh, okay, my compulsion is I've got to go around and check. I've got to make the block. And, if, and if, I, if I don't check, then I can't live in peace is what they're thinking. So that's an example of a compulsion that temporarily neutralizes the obsession. Now, D stands for disorder. And I think that calling this a disorder treats it as merely biological and diminishes the moral and spiritual reality of the problem, which is what we're going to talk about a lot tonight, is the moral and spiritual reality of the problem and and the, the biblical remedies that we need to give people who are struggling in this way. And by the way, brothers and sisters, I think that there are a lot more people who struggle with scrupulosity than we know about. Many more, actually. Um, I, I've, I've talked to more than um, you might think. Pastor Keith as well. We've been talking a lot about scrupulosity. I think people don't like to talk about it because it, so- it sounds crazy. It, so- it sounds crazy when you start to say some of these things out loud. And so I think that there are many Christians, in fact, that are needing help thinking through these things and are suffering alone, su- suffering in isolation. And maybe it's not to the degree of being completely paralyzed with fear, but maybe it's, it's nagging. Maybe it keeps them from knowing God's peace and knowing God's joy. And you can help them if you have the biblical tools at the ready. And so I hope this will be an occasion for you to, to think more about this and, and more of what you can do to help people who may be struggling in this way. Okay, let's, let's find out some more. What is scrupulosity? 
Scrupulosity has been called religious OCD. Religious OCD. And so here's in particular how um, we might categorize religious OCD from just typical OCD that we think about like, like the television show Monk, right? Here we go. The obsessions and scrupulosity, are, they're more moral and spiritual in nature. Thoughts of contamination, catching a life-threatening disease or rigid organization are not really part of this specific kind of OCD. I like this. This is helpful when we're thinking about scrupulosity. Um, religious OCD or scrupulosity, Michael Emlett says, is a tender conscience on steroids. They don't want to do the wrong thing. They don't want to cross those lines. Cross uh, A lot of times it's biblical lines, biblical principles they don't want to cross, but also it's, it's uh, lines of their own making. Or perhaps lines that have been drawn for them in their past that are not biblical lines, but their conscience is bound by it. A tender conscience on steroids. What are some examples of this then? Let's talk through a few. I've already talked to you about one, um, harming another person. So uh, the example of hitting someone with your car. It, it just not letting it go. Because, I mean, imagine that. that it's, it's terrible to think that you would harm somebody in that way. It's terrible to think that you might be responsible for the death of another person. And how could you live with yourself if you did that? Or how could you live with yourself if you might have done that and you never know? You'll never have peace. Those are the kind of things that a person with scrupulosity or who struggles in a scrupulous way, that's the way they're thinking. It burdens them tremendously or what about this shouting an obscenity in public there are, are people who struggle specifically with this thinking that uh, if I go to church if I go to the worship service this Sunday and I'm sitting there and, and the pastor's preaching and he's everything's quiet except for him and he's, un, he's unpacking the text he's expounding the passage What if I just blurt out something just completely inappropriate? And it it sounds funny, but people really do think these things and and struggle with them. And it's it's hard. It's hard for them. And and so much so that there was um, a brother I I spoke to who didn't want to go to church. In fact, he did not go to church. He, He didn't go to church on Sunday mornings, though he knew he knew he should go to church on Sunday mornings. He didn't because of that fear. Shouting out an obscenity in public. Or the fear of lying. It could be that you're, you're having a conversation, a normal conversation. You and I have conversations all the time. And, and what if I were to use uh, a generalization with you, right? Uh, we, you know, we, we got there. We got there at 5 o'clock. Well, someone who struggles in this way might think back on that conversation later and say, actually, no, 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 no. We got there at 5.15. It, w- it wasn't 5 o'clock. And that obsession, that intrusive thought, like kind of a worm in their brain, so to speak, would haunt them. And so much so that the compulsion might have to be for them calling the person they were talking to and saying, hey, listen, I, I was being dishonest. It was actually 5 o'clock. It wasn't 5.15. And the other person on the other line is thinking, oh, you didn't have to call and say that. But the scrupulous person feels like they can't get any relief until that compulsion is engaged. So lying, not the fear of, did I, was I dishonest? Was I deceitful? Did I, I say that, and this, this can be another thought, did I say that just so that I could make myself look better in that conversation? Maybe I need to go tell them about that. Maybe I need to t- confess that to the Lord. I, I don't really know. And then that will haunt them. It, was I being sinful? Was I not being sinful? And that can paralyze them with fear. The thought that you have stolen something. I'm going to read to you something. There's this book I found. There's not a whole lot written on this from a biblical counseling perspective, as you, you can imagine. Um, there's actually not much written on it at all, but especially from a biblical counseling perspective. Uh, this this man, he did a self-published book. He's a pastor at a, 
a Reformed Baptist church up in Long Island, New York, and he wrote this because he struggles in particular this way. He's a pastor. And I want to read to you um, what it's like. This is him describing something that, that he really struggled with and, and involving the sin of stealing. Okay? Oh, I, actually, this is an example he's using. He says, while the scrupulous person, while walking through his house, comes upon something he has borrowed from someone that he failed to return. He becomes plagued with guilt and obsesses over the need to get it back to that person with an apology right away. He returns the item, finding some sense of relief, until he deems it necessary to look all over his entire house for anything else he may have potentially borrowed at some point. He must now locate everything borrowed during his entire life, find its rightful owner, and return the item with an apology. As he begins the process of returning items that he believes don't belong to him, he realizes there are many items whose origin he cannot recall. Did I borrow this shovel or is this mine? Was it given to me or loaned to me? And what about this pencil? Before you know it, he's trapped in a world of trying to restore everything in his life to a state of perfection. Sadly, at this point, he does not recognize that as a fallen creature, he is imperfect and will never achieve perfection in this life. That's a real example of what someone may struggle with. Thinking about, have I stolen this? Maybe I don't know. Maybe I have, and I've got to do I, immediately. I've got to drop everything and get over there because I've let too much time go already. Someone, uh, another example of an tr- intrusive thought or an obsession might be pornographic images, which can truly haunt the individual who scr- struggles in this way, with images that that seem to uh, come into their minds all at once. And we'll talk about the questions that come along with this later on. But imagine the torment that comes to the soul of a believer who struggles in this way when that is their experience. Or this question. Am I a homosexual? Do I struggle with same-sex desire? How, How do I know? I mean, I, I, I liked the, the way that that jacket looked on, on that guy. Does that mean I, I'm, I'm homosexual? And that can be something that they continue to obsess over. False conversion. Am I, am I a false convert? Now, um, I, think, I think next weekend in October, I'm going to be teaching um, in this track on assurance of salvation. And so we'll get into more of those issues then. But this is, a, this is actually a big one in the category of scrupulosity. Am I really saved? And, and this, I, I guarantee you probably know someone who struggles with this. I, I bet you all know somebody who struggles in this way. Am I really saved? Am I a false convert? And they can't shake it. Or they feel like they can't. Or this, neglect of responsibility. The fear or the obsession that I, I, haven't, I haven't done what I should have done. I didn't do all I could have done to help this situation or help this person. Uh, I'll give you an example. Okay? Um, I, I, do, I, I do and I have struggled with some of these things personally. And so it's led me to do a lot of research as to what the Bible says about these issues because a lot of the, the psychological terminology, you know, is not in the scriptures. So what does the Bible say about it? And um, I've, uh, I've been struggling with things like this for about the last eight years or so. And my, my, uh, my friends like Keith and, and Dan Kirk and my wife have been very helpful in this. But I'll give an example of something in terms of neglect of responsibility that, that might resonate or maybe you, you know someone who's struggling this way. We were at Disneyland in 2013. I was out in California doing some church planning training uh, during that summer for a couple of months. My family was out there with me. My kids were pretty young at the time, and we went to Disneyland for a whole day. You know how expensive Disneyland is, so we wanted to get all of the fun we could out of one day because we didn't have to pay for two. And so uh, we got there when it opened, you know, and, and, and when it closed is when we left. 
Now, when we were closing, you can imagine they have the, the fireworks at the end of the night behind the castle, and everybody's there kind of packed in, and they're watching the fireworks. And when, whenever you have to leave the park now, it's this, this huge herd of people that are trying to get out the, the exits. And it's, it's just a, kind of a chaos, really. And uh, we, we had to dip inside a store for some reason. I think my wife wanted to get one last-minute gift for somebody. And so we were in there. The kids were, they were zonked out in the strollers, and everybody was whipped. Well, um, she got what she needed, and we got back on the kind of the main drag, and we were heading toward the exit. And in my mind, I thought to myself, when we were in that store, there was a spill on the floor. And somebody spilled um, some, some water over kind of where we were standing. Now... I thought to myself, don't worry about it. You got your kids, you got to get to the car. Just, just go. But then I, 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 could, I felt like I couldn't let it go. What if somebody, what if somebody slipped? And what if somebody you know, broke a leg? What if somebody broke their, their, their neck? Because I didn't take the time to clean up that mess that I saw. And so I actually, actually talking to my wife about this today, I said, do you remember that? And she said, yeah, I was kind of frustrated with you. <laughs> because I, I made this turn around. Or actually, I left them there and I ran back as fast as I could against traffic to go and clean up the mess. That was, now you could say, oh, that was the right thing to do, right? That, that was the responsible thing to do. But actually, it was just so that I could feel better about it. So I could let it go. So I could have some peace. And so it ended up being selfish in the end. Even though it, you could look at it and say that was a good thing. It was selfish in terms of the inner man. So these are some examples now, there are many more, but those will get us started, okay? All right, let's now look at characteristics of these obsessions or intrusive thoughts. Characteristics of them. Paralysis of fear. I want you to turn with me to 2 Timothy, chapter 1. I'm going to look at verse 7 in particular. Second Timothy 1, verse 7. It's, it's one that uh, a lot of us know, I think. But I think it applies to this paralysis of fear that the scrupulous person struggles with. Verse 7 says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So, as I was doing some reading on this, the author I was reading said something very important concerning this verse. If we are fearful, if we have a paralysis of fear, a fear that cripples us from doing the things that God wants us to do, that's not from God. That spirit of fear is not from God. Instead, we know that God has given us a spirit of power. When we are fearful, we lack power. In our fear, we focus on ourselves, what we're afraid of losing or what we're afraid of experiencing. And this leaves, leaves, leaves us sapped of strength to do anything good. This, this spirit of fear saps us of the energy we need to honor God and to do the things that he's called us to do as his people. But God's given us a spirit of power. So we, we lean on him, we trust in him so that we can not live in fear, but live in a way that shows that he is the one that is our master and not fear. He's given us a spirit of love. Now, love, we know, is, is not primarily an emotion. Emotions are involved, but it's primarily a choice, right? A choice to deny ourselves to do good to others. That's the biblical understanding of agape love. Denying ourselves for the good of others. But when you are crippled with fear over something, it keeps you from thinking of others. Keeps you focused on self. Keeps you from thinking that others should be the ones that you are blessing and sacrificing for. You're just thinking about how you can relieve the struggle, how you can relieve the obsession. It paralyzes us. It keeps us looking to ourselves. 
and trying to lean on ourselves and how can we get what we want, which is just relief a lot of times. But love, the spirit that God has given us, is one that focuses on others like Jesus did when he came to die for us, right? Philippians chapter 2, right? He took on humanity. And he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He came from heaven to the earth to the cross for us. And that's the same spirit that we ought to be engaging in. That's the spirit that God has given us, not a spirit of fear. And self-control as well. He's given us the spirit of self-control. The person who is paralyzed with fear because of these obsessions, um, they are not operating in self-control or self-discipline. I like what John MacArthur says about this word here, self-control. He says, it, is, it, it holds the idea of a self-controlled, disciplined, and properly prioritized mind. But as we just got through saying, the person who is paralyzed with fear because of these obsessions, uh, you, you can't say that they have their priorities in order because self has become most important. And we'll see that in just a moment more clearly. So there is a, a paralysis of fear that keeps one from living the way God has called them to live by repentance and faith and by thinking of others as more important than themselves. What else? Other characteristics of these intrusive thoughts. A preoccupation with self. We just said that. Second Timothy 3.2 in that same book says this about the last days. In those last days, there will be lovers of self. And here's the thing. There are many ways for us to love ourselves. You can look on social media and you can look at uh, those who are promoting themselves on social media and it's very obvious that they're promoting themselves and you say, they are lovers of self. But there are other ways to be preoccupied with oneself. Familiar thoughts to a scrupulous person. Here we go. Let me give you a few. Okay, Maybe you can take some notes on the side if, if you want to. But... Concerning this preoccupation, preoccupation with self, here's some familiar thoughts that a scrupulous person struggles with. Could I really be the kind of person that would do something like that? With a certain fear, right? If that were true of me, then I would not be able to live with myself. What would people think of me if they knew that I had thoughts like that? How could God love someone like me? A saved person wouldn't do such things or think such things or say such things. But notice what is central to all of those statements. I in me. I in me. Only asking the question about God so far as it pertains to self. Now, here's the thing. These thoughts, if, if, you, if we don't understand what Scripture says about pride, if we don't know the, the different facets of pride scripturally, then these thoughts might even sound humble, right? Oh, this person, they, they're so struggling with, with their self-image. They're struggling with confidence in themselves, it sounds to some people maybe like it's humble, but it's just another expression of pride because the only way to combat pride is for us to forget self in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the only way for us to truly be humbled is to look to Jesus, look to God, be humbled by that so that we're not even thinking of ourselves at all. There's a preoccupation with self. And there's also a reliance on self. Look with me at Proverbs 14, verse 12. Proverbs 14, verse 12. This applies in a lot of different scenarios, but I think here it's pertinent. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And the scrupulous person 
wrongly looks to self to be their savior. When you are evaluating your own heart, when you're asking all these questions and being very introspective and looking for something inside yourself that would tell you it's not that bad or you're not that bad, then who are you relying on? You. You're relying on you. It's interesting. Uh, I want to show you something here. This is a book I wouldn't recommend on scrupulosity as far as I, when I understand what it's getting at. I was reading a review of this book. It's called The Doubting Disease by Joseph Karochi. I'm going to say it's Karochi or something. But um, in the Journal of Biblical Counseling, Michael Emlett writes a review of that book. It's more of a Christian psychology perspective. Okay? And this is what he says in terms of the, uh, the, sh- the weakness of the book. I think it's profound because it helps us understand the reliance on self that the scrupulous person has. He says this, What gives the struggler the power to face one's fears? To remain in a place of doubt, ambiguity, and anxiety. Who provides the resources for such battle, for such a battle? He says, Kurochi's approach begins and ends with the individual. A biblical approach to scrupulosity, though, is what he says, begins and ends with God, the God of the universe, whose redemptive work through Jesus Christ, his outpouring of his spirit and life-giving word provide the grounding for such practical exercises. So what gives the struggler the power to face one's fears to remain in a place of, of doubt or ambu- ambiguity and anxiety? How do you combat that? What do you do? He's saying that the advice and the counsel in that book is it's all about self, what you can do. It begins and ends with the individual. And he's saying that truly, though, for us, we need to understand that it begins and ends with the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the three-in-one. Reliance on self to give you what you need to satisfy the obsession. But when you engage in self-defense, do I have that there? Self-defense, you know, trusting in yourself to deal with the obsessions and the intrusive thoughts. Well, self-defense only takes the scrupulous person deeper into darkness. Self-trust seems like it's right to a man, but its end is the way to death. I like what, there's a quote by Jack Miller, he says, This He says, never again look at your sins apart from Christ. You can't handle them. Uh, So true. Don't go looking in your heart to evaluate your heart without the gospel, without Christ at the forefront of your mind. See, because the self-reliance really has you trusting yourself to evaluate your heart, which um, some counselors have called morbid introspection. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book called Spiritual Depression, and in it he calls it morbidity, the idea that a person will take his or her heart and just turn it every which away to try and find the kind of the root of every single little sin or potential sin even. The person who struggles with these obsessions often engages in that self-trust. Self-trust, self-reliance in evaluating your own heart. Or trusting yourself to alleviate the obsession, which is what compulsions are. And we'll talk about that more, but that's essentially trusting in yourself to alleviate the obsession. Much of the time it involves looking for reasons inside yourself that will satisfy your fears, but it does so without the gospel. And we need to remember we aren't the Savior, Christ is. You aren't the Savior. Even as a counselor for people who are struggling, you're not the Savior. You're pointing them to the Savior, which is Jesus. What else? What other characteristics? A distortion of reality. And this is fear in general, isn't it? Fear distorts our perception of what is real. It blows things out of proportion, exaggerates things. 
So we don't see things in the proper perspective. And so this is the distortion of reality I mainly want to talk about. It's the, the presence of intrusive thoughts for the scrupulous person is equated with guilt or at least the suspicion of guilt. So it's like this. The, the person has the intrusive thought. They experience it. And the distortion of reality comes with them thinking, I must have done it. I thought it. I must have done it. Or I thought it. I must be the kind of person who does that, who engages in that habitually. If I thought it, I must be that kind of person. Or at least there's a strong suspicion that it's that way. But here's, here's the truth. They need to be reminded that there's a difference between temptation and actually giving in to the temptation, isn't there? There is a difference. Maybe you had the thought, but it doesn't mean you've engaged in that activity. Maybe you entertained it in your heart for a moment, but that's still not the same as you operating outside of yourself and doing it outwardly. But the person that struggles in this way kind of takes this little seed and says, it must be true. It must be like this. It must look like this if it's this. Or it could be that way. And what if, I, what if it isn't? I don't know. It paralyzes them. And the scrupulous person, brothers and sisters, is highly unreasonable. It's very important that they have fellow Christians that are going to bear their burdens, right? I, I, I love, that's why I love um, Galatians 6.2. It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. They need people like you to come alongside and, and help them think reasonably. Reasonably. I was talking to another brother about this. Okay, Consider this temptation, this obsessive thought. Um, I've, I've got to check the doors and make sure they're locked at night. My kids are in bed. My wife is in bed. I need to check the doors and make sure they're locked. Okay? Well, that's reasonable, right? Go around and check all the doors. What's not reasonable is to do it three or four times. You're trusting in yourself. You're trusting in the compulsion to check instead of, I've done what is reasonable. And that's a good question for a, a scrupulous person to ask. What is reasonable? And they often need people to come alongside them and say, that is reasonable. A wise person to say, that's reasonable. This is not. Yes, it's responsible for you to check the locks once. It wouldn't be if you kept going back again and again and again. That's not faith. That's, that's you selfishly seeking to get what you want your way. Ultimately, if, you, if, if we just cut through all of the cloud, that's what it is. And so they need people to come alongside and help them understand what is a reasonable goal. And, and by the way, it's, it's hard for the scrupulous person, I think, because oftentimes they're thinking in terms of responsibility. Like, I want to be a responsible Christian. I, I want to do what's right for other people, for God. I think it st- often can start in a good place, but then it can be distorted. It can become exaggerated. It can, it can become very sinful in the end. But they're thinking in terms of responsibility, but they, they think responsibility looks like this. When really it's just like this. And so that's where a good counselor can come into play. Selectivity. What is selectivity? Now, I I think in your notes I noticed something. You're going to have to write this above um, because I didn't put this in your notes. Selectivity with sin. Trying to find a place where you can uh, squeeze that in. Selectivity with sin. There are different kinds of selectivity that I want to talk to you about. Okay, so what, what do I mean by selectivity when it comes to the scrupulous person? Well, the scrupulous person focuses on certain potential sins to the neglect of actual sins that are present in his life. He's inconsistent. This again reveals a preoccupation with self because if God was the focus, then all sin would be a concern, right? So it's the idea that what if, there's a lot of what if. What if I actually did that? What if I'm that kind of person? What now? 
And so they wrestle and grapple and they're paralyzed with, with potential sins. But then there are um, sins that they're actually engaging in that they're paying no attention to. Let me give you an example. Like the fact that they're not believing God, right? They're, ap- they're operating in unbelief. Instead of trusting in God and His Word, they're trusting in themselves. They're... Their powers of assessment and evaluation of their own hearts and their power to alleviate the stress of the obsession. Unbelief. Um, What about the responsibility that a husband might have to his wife and his children? Neglecting the love that he's to be showing to them because he's, he's drawn in on himself. A faithful stewardship of time. You know, if somebody is at work and they have this obsessive thought and they keep rolling around in their mind and they have to engage in some kind of compulsion or compulsions in order to alleviate the stress of that obsession, well, how much time are you taking away from your employer because you would not trust God and take the next step, right? So there are these kinds of sins that they're neglecting all when they're thinking about potential sins or a failure to serve others at the church. Not going to church, neglecting the gathering, right? Like Hebrews chapter 10 says, neglecting the gathering, neglecting to be with God's people and encourage them because there's so much fear associated with what could happen. So there's selectivity with sin, but there's also selectivity with the attributes of God. Imagine this, Exodus chapter 20. Verses 4 through 6, we'll read this in this Ten Commandments section. We read, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Stop. The scrupulous person could very easily say, become paralyzed with that. He's a jealous God. He visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children. And, And instead of continuing to read, but showing steadfast love, to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So they can take some of the attributes of God, like, for instance, holiness and justice, and that becomes their preoccupation, right? Which can lead them to fear, to the neglect of His love and mercy. But we we are people who want all of the Bible, all of it, all of the attributes of God, not just some of them. And so there's got to be a consistency that you help them to see. Yes, God is holy. Yes, He is just, but He's also this. He's also loving. He's also good. He's also gracious. He's also generous to those who are in Christ. They could think of Acts chapter 12. Herod was struck down by God and eaten by worms because he didn't give God the glory. And they can zero in on something like that, but forget about the gentle and lowly heart of the Savior from Matthew chapter 11. So there's a selectivity, choosing these attributes and forgetting these when it comes to God's character. What about a selectivity with Bible texts as well? So look with me at... I'm sorry, I'll give you those Bible texts there. 1 Peter 1.15 and 1 Peter 2.24 Now, this kind of fits with what we were just talking about, but there's another text after this I'll show you that kind of fits in the same category. But look at 1 Peter with me. First Peter 1.15 says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And that can haunt a person who struggles in this way. I'm supposed to be holy in all my conduct. Like the one who called me is holy. Like God is holy. And that can become a petrifying 
reality for that person and forget about text just a, a chapter over. In First Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We need all Scripture. Because all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. All of it. That's what Paul tells us. Somebody can take a a text like Matthew 5, 27 and 28 and they can think, okay, Jesus says that if you look at a woman to lust after, then you're an adulterer at heart. And they can say, okay, in my heart, I know I've done that. I'm, I'm an adulterer. And they can concentrate on that, but forget about texts like Luke 7.47 where the, the woman of the city, most likely she's a prostitute and she's there and she's worshiping Jesus. She's loving Him much. Why? Because she was forgiven much. They need a consistency. They need a balanced set of verses that they can meditate on. There's also selectivity with what's true of the inner man. Oh, 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 what just happened? There we go, okay. Yes, there is indwelling sin, but there's also the indwelling spirit. And we are new creatures in Christ. We've got a new nature and new abilities to fight sin, and we're growing in righteousness. So, yes, the the presence of sin is still with us. That is true. We know that from the Scriptures. But it's also true that 2 Corinthians 5.17, for those who are in Christ... You are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. It's also true that like 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that as we behold the glory of the Lord in the Bible, then we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Spirit's indwelling us and He's transforming us as we look to Scripture and see His glory there. Another characteristic of this is an intolerance of uncertainty. I can't stand not knowing this about my heart, about the root of my heart, about my idolatries. I can't stand not knowing. I've got to look harder. I've got to look deeper within. Look with me at First Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Pray this for any scrupulous people that you know or if you yourself struggle in this way. 1 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. I pray that they would have a heart like, like Paul. Paul says, But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself. He says, I don't know. I don't know that there's anything that's, that's a, a problem in my heart in, term, in terms of you know, ongoing sin, but it is the Lord who judges me. The scrupulous person needs to leave it up to God. God is my judge. And, and um, Keith Palmer, Pastor Keith, he's going to be teaching on the demand of certainty for the scrupulous person. He's going to be doing that the third weekend And so uh, more to come on that. But uh, the person who must be certain needs to pray a prayer like Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting, right? Search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Okay. Uh, I don't have much time. Okay. Biblical remedies. Biblical remedies. We are no longer slaves to sin. One of the characteristics about the scrupulous person is that they're engaging in this kind of slavish cycle. The cycle of sin as if they are still shackled to the flesh. You look with me at Romans 6 and get some hope for the person who is plagued in this way. Romans 6, 16-19. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. 
But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness, shackled to righteousness now. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as one, um, once you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. You need to help them understand that the chains have been broken. They are free in Christ. They don't have to keep going back to that compulsion and self-trust and self, self-defense, preoccupation with self. They need to be told these things. They need to be told that they must sow to the Spirit instead of sowing to the flesh. So to the Spirit, not to the flesh. That language is used in Galatians. Galatians 5 and 6. Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then in chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, you see that sowing language being used. It says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. There's a book that I want to recommend. It's one that's underappreciated, I think, that helps deal with this issue. Um, it's, it, it sounds like it's a self-help book. I wish they'd change the title, honestly. It's a, You Can Change. But it's all in the subtitle. God's Transforming Power for Our Sinful Behavior and Negative Emotions. I've used this book many times. It's very helpful. And Tim Chester talks about what it means to sow to the spirit instead of the flesh. And he, he, makes, he makes the point of saying that habits can be formed in the flesh, but habits can also be formed in the spirit. Early on when I was studying biblical counseling, I remember one of the, uh, I think it was either Steve Byers or Randy Patton talking about um, how we have the gift from God of habit. Yes, you can have bad habits and we all have bad habits, but you also have the gift of habit when it comes to good things that we choose to do when we are walking in the Spirit. So let me read this quote to you from this book. Tim Chester says this on sowing to the flesh versus sowing to the Spirit. He says, our sinful nature has idolatrous desires that cause sinful behavior and emotions. But the Spirit has placed in the heart of every Christian a new desire, the desire for holiness. So we sow to the flesh whenever we do something that strengthens or provokes our sinful desires. That's what it means. That's helpful, isn't it? All right, I'm going to read that again. We sow to the flesh whenever we do something that strengthens or provokes our sinful desires. We sow to the spirit whenever we strengthen our spirit-inspired desire for holiness. So what do you think the compulsion is? Sowing to the flesh or sowing to the spirit? Sowing to the flesh, right? Engage in that compulsion and, and all you're doing is strengthening the flesh, Right? like you're feeding the dragon. It's getting bigger and more dangerous. But if we sow to the Spirit, then we're helped in walking in the Spirit and bearing the fruit of the Spirit. A person also needs to remember that he or she is worse than they realize. How is that helpful? I'm going to show you because it, it really ends up being very helpful, I think. Uh, we're, we're worse than we realize. We're worse than we realize. Even say that, listen, this may seem counterproductive, but when we remove all illusions of finding hope in ourselves, we will urgently seek Christ. What you need to do is you need to remind yourself, there, there is no hope in me. It, it, it's, it's not like I'm just... A little bit bad. Now I just like, okay, yeah, I do some bad things every now and then. No, 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 we have the flesh in us, right? 
the presence of sin is in us. And it's, it's darker than we realize. And so when you remind yourself of that, you're actually saying, you, you don't have anything that would merit any hope that you should put in yourself whatsoever. So wipe that all off the table. Any, anything that you think could give you hope in yourself, it's not there. And so that's what you're doing by saying you're actually worse than you realize. So that you're then primed to do what? Seek Jesus. You ever heard this quote before from John Bunyan? The best prayer I ever prayed had enough sin to damn the whole world. That's Bunyan. Right? Author of Pilgrim's Progress said that. He understood the flesh. There's no hope in us. Only hope in Christ. I like this other quote from Jack Miller. He says, Cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. And you're more loved than you ever dared hope. But here's the thing. As dark as our sins are, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And no matter how dark we are, here's what we read in Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I remember meeting um, a couple of ladies. Um, We were doing some gospel um, presentations. We We were sharing the gospel in downtown Fort Worth. And met a couple of ladies uh, who believed that you could, you could lose your salvation because you could take yourself out of the grasp of God, right? You, thinking about John chapter 10, uh, um, I'm sorry, John chapter 10, not sin. John chapter 10 saying that, that we are in the grasp of Christ and of God, right? No one can snatch you out of his hand. And they said, but you can snatch yourself out. That you can take yourself out of his hand. Said so no one can take you out of his hand, but you could take yourself out. And I want to think about this. It says, nor anything else in all creation. Hey, what, what Paul's doing, he's being completely exhaustive there. Nothing in all creation, including you. Can't take yourself out. So as dark as, it, it, as, dark as your sins are, you can't be separated from God's love in Christ. As deep as your sins go, you can't be separated from God's love in Christ. Biblical remedies. We must quickly turn our minds to Christ. Forget forget ourselves in His glory, like we talked about earlier. Turn your minds to Christ quickly. That's important too. Don't don't let it linger. Don't let that obsession linger. It gets stronger as you let it linger. As As you think about it more, it becomes bigger and harder to resist. We need to forget ourselves in His glory. I love Romans 13, 14. It's a good one for you to have your counselees memorize. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I like that. that that's like don't feed it, right? Don't feed it. Don't feed the dragon so it's bigger and, and harder to overcome next time. Quickly turn your minds to Christ. Forget yourself in His glory. That's what Tim Chester says and You Can Change. He says, The New Testament language of repentance is very violent. It includes amputating, right? Cut off your right hand, right? Cut up, pluck out your, your eye if it caused you to sin. It, it's, it includes amputating, murdering, starving, and fighting. We need to be violent with sin. This is the starving text he's talking about. Starve it. Starve your flesh. Don't feed it, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Our promises in Christ, who He is for you, right? What He's given you, the resources that are yours now because of what He's done for you, His life and death and resurrection. Put that on in your minds. Meditate on that. Dwell on that. Not the obsession, not what your heart wants you to meditate on, but what He has given you in His person and in His work. We must repent of self-focus and turn to a focus on God, right? 
the, the focus is often, um, I need to figure out what's going on with this sin. If I've committed this sin, if I'm guilty of this, if, if I could do this, and I've got to flee it. And they're not thinking about the fact that they're focused on self. But that's a sin that they need to repent of, to confess and forsake. That's one of the best uh, repentance texts, I think. And write this down if you don't have it in your um, Rolodex, your scriptural Rolodex. And that is Proverbs 28, 13. It says that, that he who conceals his transgression does not prosper. But he who, can, who confesses it and forsakes it will obtain mercy. Confesses it and forsakes it. Repent of that self-focus and focus on God instead. By the way, this includes engaging with God personally. It's not just a ritualistic confession, right? Like you're just repeating something mindlessly. Mindless prayers, mindless confession. That's not engaging with the Lord Jesus Christ, right? I think that John 15 is a wonderful text for us to to study and to know because uh, there is this relationship, this intimacy, this closeness, this fellowship that we have with Jesus that we need to think about. And uh, John 15 is one of those places that unpacks that pretty well. Perfectly, in fact, because it's Scripture. So John 15, 7 and 8. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And I love that. If, my, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. So what's happening is if you are abiding in Christ and his words are, are taking up residence in your heart, then the reason why you can ask whatever you want and it will be done for you is because his words are shaping your heart. And so what you pray for is what? What he wants. What you pray for is his will instead of selfish prayers. To know more, but by the way, you can look this up. I don't have much time to, to deal with this, but if you want a picture of what it looks like to uh, relate to God and have uh, a relationship where you're engaging with him, not in a ritualistic kind of way, but in a true relationship kind of way, then study the Psalms. You can look at that Psalm chapter 40 later for an example of this. This is more than just Christian thought replacement. You're engaging with Christ. And by the way, if you want a chapter on how to do that, um, Finally Free, where is it? Do I have it? No? I didn't bring it up. Uh, Finally Free by Heath Lambert. You guys know that book? It's on lust, but I think it's a book that everybody should read because it's just a manual on how to fight sin. You could take uh, the the sin of lust out of there and replace it with any sin, and it it will be a, a wonderful how to fight sin manual for Christians. Finally free by Heath Lambert. And there's a, there's a chapter at the end, uh, how to fight lust with a dynamic relationship to Jesus. It is the best chapter in the book. The whole thing's great. But that's the best. So I, I recommend that to you. And we must also turn, turn to, to others. Because we're so self-focused, we need to turn to others in the freedom of Christ. It's a great text that uh, exhibits that. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers. What? Freedom in Christ. You're free. So does that mean you should do whatever you want to? Follow your heart? No. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Your freedom in Christ ought to be used to love the saints. To love the brothers and sisters. We must choose what is right even when our hearts are screaming no. We don't follow our feelings. We we follow the word of God. We follow Christ. We don't follow our feelings. There's a great post. You can look this up. It's by Paul Tauchus. T-A-U-T-G-E-S. Tauchus, I think is how you say it. Um, he's a great uh, biblical counselor. You can go look up his blog. It's wonderful. But uh, he has this post called, We are called to believe and obey God's word before our emotions agree. Teach your counselees that. Before you feel like it, do what you're called to do, what God has revealed in his word. Step out on faith and do it. Act upon it. That's faith. Now, you can say, Lord, forgive me that my heart's not in the right place. Forgive me that I don't want to do this right now. Please forgive me for that. But then you step out on faith and you do the right thing, even if your heart doesn't agree. Look, look at me at Hebrews. And I'm, I am out of time, but I, I've got to give you this text, okay? 
Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith there. By faith, verse 7, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Notice that it was by faith in what God had revealed, the warning God had given, what God had told him to do. He acted on that. He didn't, he didn't have his feelings to act upon. There's no feelings that are talked about there, but what God had said. And he goes on to talk about Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. God told him to do it. He acted. It wasn't feelings-based. It was word-based. It, it was based on what God had revealed. And so teach your counselees this. And we'll close with this. What scrupulous people need from their counselors? Patience. First Thessalonians 5.14 admonish the idle or unruly, right? Help the weak. Encourage the faint-hearted. Be patient with them all. That's what it says at the end. Be patient with them all. So it doesn't matter what they're struggling with. There's different ways you respond to different people who are struggling in different ways, but you have to be patient with them all. They need your patience. People who are struggling with this scrupulous obsession need you to be patient with them because it's hard. It's, it sounds crazy, and it, it, is, um, it is suffering. It is. I, we can say that. Have an unfazed disposition. Don't, whenever they tell you what they're really struggling with, don't look shocked, okay? And because it, it, it's a burden for them. It really is. And, it'll, and if you, if you kind of go, oh, okay, or uh, what, then that's, you're, you're not going to encourage them to talk more. And they need to talk more so you can know what to preach to, right? What to counsel from the scriptures. So have an unfazed disposition. And then, like we said earlier, help them to choose what is reasonable. And finally, they just need, they need encouragement. They need encouragement. I like this from Proverbs 12, 25. I'll just close with this. They, uh, because their hearts are often heavy. They're often heavy. But this, look, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. But a good word makes him glad. I'm sorry, I've taken too much time. They're not going to let me do this hour anymore. So let's, let's close the prayer. Father, thank you. May this be used for the good of your name, Lord, to promote your glory. And Father, may it help these counselors to disciple well. In Jesus' name, amen.